The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Exploring our oneness with spirit and each other. Unity Online Radio. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, where spirituality and recovery meet with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D. Now, here's your host, Reverend Anna Schaus. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth in recovery. My name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your host, and thank you all for joining us today. I'm very glad that you're listening, and uh, thank you so much also for liking the Spirit of Recovery uh, Facebook page, and thank you for posting on there and for letting your friends uh, know about us here on unityonlineradio.org. And thank you also for letting me know how you're doing in your spirituality and your recovery walk. And uh, I'm glad to know that what we're doing here on Spirit of Recovery is making a difference for you and that the guests that we have here are touching your heart and uh, opening your mind and uh, opening new possibilities for you in terms of your own recovery and your own spirituality. Every week we do talk about topics that are important to the recovery community with guests who are down to earth, knowledgeable and innovative. And my guests are people who are uh, a lot of times people in recovery themselves and who are also working with or writing for or and somehow reaching out to other recovering people. And uh, so they're bringing you practical information that you can use and lively discussion that gets you thinking. You can listen to Spirit of Recovery in a variety of ways. You can listen live, of course, via your computer or via your smart device. You can also go to Stitcher.com and download their app and search for Spirit of Recovery. If you have an Alexa-enabled device, you can ask Alexa to play Unity online radio. You can go to iTunes. Um, so there's a variety of ways that you can listen. We've also got lots of uh, great podcasts that are archived, so you can listen on demand. Just go to unityonlineradio.org slash program slash spirit of recovery or through any of those other avenues, and you can uh, listen to your heart's content. There are lots of great programs with incredible guests. I want you to know that Spirit of Recovery is a welcoming place so that if you're a person that's in recovery from any kind of an addiction or if you're the family member or friend of somebody that's got the disease of addiction, you're very welcome here. And certainly also if you're just a person that's interested, uh, curious, want to know more about addiction and recovery, want to know how it's related to spirituality, you're just interested in spirituality, we're glad you're here and you're welcome um, to bring in a comment or a question for my guest on the topic of the day. And um, we are would be happy to um, have you and, uh, and to participate in our discussions. And I always want family members to realize that um, there is recovery for family members as family members so that um, there's 12-step programs, there's therapies, there's all kinds of things. So family members and friends can also be engaged in a recovery process to learn how to claim your own life um, and let go of the enabling behaviors and um, really focus on your own life and, and on your own relationships. Again, um, I want you to know that if you like what's happening on Spirit of Recovery or uh, any of the other great programs you hear on Unity Online Radio, if you want to, you can support this um, nonprofit radio station with your finances. You can make a one-time or ongoing donation to Unity just by texting Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone, and um, that's much appreciated if you'd like to do that. Again, my name is Anna Schaus, and I am your Spirit of Recovery host. I'm a Unity minister and an addictions counselor. 
I'm also a person who has in my own circle of love and friendship uh, many people with the disease of addiction. And this month of May, um, 36 years ago, those relationships got me started on an active path of personal growth and spiritual development, for which I'm really grateful. They got me in touch with my higher power and in touch with my own life, which I wasn't very in touch with at the time. So I'm grateful it opened up a whole world for me and um, opened up uh spiritual growth, personal growth, and the opportunity to be of service. And so uh, my walk continues to be an integration of unity and recovery principles, and it keeps transforming my life and uh, keeps me growing in deeper ways. So I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to share these ideas with you through Spirit of Recovery. Today, um, our topic is free from hate, free to live, and free to help. And uh, my guest is Scott Shepard, and Scott's got a really fascinating story, and he's going to be sharing that with us today, and I know that you'll be inspired. I'm inspired by uh, his choices in life and and by um, how he's out there today, uh, really being a support to people in some some important important ways. But uh, Scott uh, entered recovery from alcoholism uh, a number of years ago, and uh, that started a really powerful transformation in his life. Uh, when he started into the recovery process, he had to take a long, honest look at himself. I guess he didn't have to, but um, it, the opportunity presented itself. And so uh, from that, it, it started a process of, of really a, a big life transition, certainly in addition to uh, attaining sobriety, which is, as we know, essential and important. He also began to move out of a particular mindset and a particular life set that he'd had. Um, from a very racist um, way of living to a very active, non-racist way of living. And uh, Scott, is, in Scott's own words, he was a very misguided, unhappy young person, and he was trying to escape the pain of family alcoholism. And so uh, way back in uh, his uh, younger days as a young adult and later teenager, he chose a life of racism. And even though he didn't really feel those racist things that he preached, he wanted to belong, he wanted to fit in, and he wanted to be part of a family. And so, again, when he got engaged in his own recovery process, that began to open up uh, some doors for him. And so today, through again, through many uh, different events that happened and many positive, constructive choices that he's made, he's grateful to be free of what had trapped him. And he's on a mission of education and self-education with the hope of helping prevent other people, especially younger people, from falling victim to the racist recruitment traps and tactics that are used by racist organizations. So today he's going to be sharing with us how recovery transformed his life and how he helps other people. Um, You can... uh, Google Scott Shepard, um, Reformed Racist, and you can find a lot of good information about him, and you can find his blogs. He's got a blog, racistnomore1.blogspot.com. Also, you can look him up on Facebook. Scott Shepard is S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D, Reformed Racist, and you can find him on Facebook, and that'll link you also to some of his other pages. And also, he was um, a featured uh, interviewee in the film Accidental Courtesy, which is a PBS, you can go to pbs.org, the Independent Lens Films, and look up Accidental Courtesy, and you can see uh, more about his story there. So, Scott, welcome to Spirit of Recovery. Well, thank you, ma'am. I'm glad to be here. Actually, I'm really honored to, anytime I get a chance to to spread spread a word and help someone, I'm really grateful. Yeah, and thank you. Thanks for being here. And, um, uh, we're just really glad that you're with us today. Um, you know, Scott, when I, I first learned about you, when I watched the PBS film Accidental Courtesy, and the thing that really caught my attention um, right off the bat was that you, in that in that uh, interview there, in your interactions uh, with Daryl, who is the, um, Daryl Davis, who's the, uh, who kind of is the center of that film and he, what he does, is that you reveal that, that you're, Movement out of uh, the racist lifestyle started because you got in recovery for alcoholism. That impressed me. Uh, that was like, all right, I know that. You know, when when we start looking at our lives, a lot of things open up. So, would you share with us a little bit about um, that? How you got started, sort of in your um, in your 
recovery, and then we'll kind of loop back. I know there's a lot of different threads in, in your life, but would you share with us about that? How did you get in recovery from oh, alcoholism? Sure. Of course, it's kind of ironic that the film was accidental courtesy. And, uh, you know, I, I think back on it, you know, I get my recovery, starting my recovery was accidental. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't really plan on entering any kind of recovery program or anything like that. I had I had been in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, of course I'd been to a restaurant and had, had dinner and had a few drinks that night. And I actually had too many drinks that night. I left the restaurant and uh, of course the other activities that I was involved in. I was you know I'd become on the radar of the law enforcement and uh, also the FBI, and they of course were keeping an eye on me. And of course I left this restaurant and got down the road a couple of miles, and I saw blue lights, you know, in the in the back of my window uh, mirror. So I pulled over, and I always have to say this: it was not just one or two blue lights or cars. It was a sea and an ocean of blue lights. There was a lot, and mm-hmm. they pulled me over. And uh, of course, they gave me a sobriety test, with which I failed. And at the time, I also had an illegal weapon underneath the front seat of my car. So that threw me into the uh, court system. And of course, I spent several nights in jail. But when I, of course, I have to make a bond, I, you know, of course, I had to have an attorney to try to get me out of trouble. And I came up with a plan. Actually, I didn't come up with a plan. I came up with the idea that I would use one of the oldest tricks in the book that people mm-hmm. use, and that's go into a treatment center, get paperwork, and go back to court and give it to the judge and have the charges dropped. And that was my plan. After that, I was going to go on and you know continue in my in my life of racism. Well, I went to Cumberland Heights Alcohol and Drug Treatment Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Went in, and uh, of course, the director of the place pulled me in and said, "You know, we we've got blacks in here. Also, is that going to be a problem?" I said, "No, I want my paperwork. I want to get out and then go on, you know, with my life." And uh, what I didn't realize was when I went into this treatment center, I went in one person and came out other, another. And it was really uh, an eye-opening experience. I, you know, I had to, I had to sit down with uh, all, you know, there was people of different races, different religions, different sexual preferences, and, and just, you know, a, a whole gamut of, of, of people. And, you know, I was forced to participate in the counseling sessions and and group meetings while I was there if I wanted to get that paper and get out. Well, I got into these group meetings and I started learning, you know, having to take a cold hard look at myself and found out a lot of things about myself and why I was doing the things I was doing. And uh, that was basically what the seed was planting. Mm-hmm. Do you can you remember like one? I'm sure there wasn't just one moment, but but a, a moment that stands out to you, like in in that in the treatment process when you started really going, wow, maybe you know how I've lived is is off base here. It doesn't make sense. Well, actually, you know, actually, it was pretty pretty much. There may have been two incidents. That, I mean, you know, that really stand out. One of them was when I'm. When I first went into this treatment center, you know, I was standoffish. Everybody was standoffish, you know, towards me because, it, you know, I had, it had been all over the news and stuff that what happened and who I was and and that I was coming to Cumberland Heights, and they knew this. And, of course, I went in, I was sitting in a chair, and uh, I felt uncomfortable. And, like I said, I know they did too, but there was uh, this one, one guy. I noticed he was over by a ironing board. He was ironing, you know, ironing his clothes, shirt, and pants, and everything. And I guess about 15, 20 minutes. And I looked up from where I was sitting, and standing there in front of me was uh, a gentleman named Mike. And uh, I forgot Mike's name. I wish, and I hope he's still living. I hope he's doing great. I, I would really love to see him. But because he doesn't realize how much he kind of changed my life. And he was standing there, and he had he had white shoes on, white socks, white pants, and a white shirt. And then walked up to me and told me, "Look, he wanted to join the Ku Klux Klan." And that that moment itself, you know, not only did I, but also 
everybody in the room and him started just busted out and cracked, you know, cracked up and started laughing. And it kind of broke the ice, ice there. And, and from that moment on, you know, Mike and I talked and we, we became real good friends. So, you know, that was, that was probably one of the major things in that treatment center that broke the ice that, you know, mm-hmm. you know, allowed me to really start looking at myself and being honest. Right, it's like he, then, he had course, the guts to name it, I guess, kind of come out and oh, yes, sort of. Yes, and he was, uh, I mean, great guy. And, I mean, it was, it was really comical, at the t- you know, at the time. And, and, of course, then there was another there was a, a girl there of, uh, I don't know, I don't know if she was bisexual or, or you know, or lesbian. No, it doesn't really matter. But at the time, of course, we had found this out and, they would take us out on different to different meetings and stuff from the treatment center out in Nashville, and of course on the, on the van, you know, there's a lot of people that were were talking about her and being, you know, that she's being, you know, was lesbian, and so I butted right in. You know, I, I was always guilty of uh, of bashing gays and things like that, and I butted right in, and I would right in the middle of it. And then, you know, I didn't know, but, you know, it upset her. And we got back to the treatment center. And, of course, the next morning, the subject was brought up. And I was sitting in, you know, of course, sitting in the group. Uh, I guess it was maybe 50, 60 people at the time there that morning. And that issue came up, and then she voiced her her concerns on what happened and stuff. And so, and. I felt a I felt a feeling of guilt and sadness that really came over me, and for some reason I was you know something told me you know I needed to say something, so I stood up and, and publicly apologized to her, and, uh, and she also you know continues to be a good friend, and it was things mm-hmm. like that you know people that were different than I was you know I guess you know. I didn't want to have much to do with and did have hate for. And uh, those were two things in there that really, really cracked up, you know, cracked the whip and got me looking at myself. Right. Yeah, you know, thank you. That that uh, one really stands out to me because you you had feelings. I mean, that's what you're saying, that, you know, that you had feelings of regret and sadness and, and that you were willing to make that uh, public amends to her. And that in itself, you know, is 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 health itself. I mean, that shows that's recovery. I guess because you know, in active addiction, whether it's substance addiction or active, you know, addiction to a, a really strict kind of negative thinking, like racism or something, numbness is part of it. And people don't feel anything, and they don't ha- have the empathy. What what do you think allowed you to have that sense of empathy in that situation? Well, you're right. You know, uh, when you said, you know, of course, it was, it was an addiction. You know, that life was an addiction, and uh, uh, and there is a numbing uh, effect on your, you know, your own feelings. I, you know, I can look back. I look back now, and and I know the things that I did and said were wrong, but I also remember that during the time that I was doing it. Uh, I always had this little voice in the back of my head, you know, do you, do you really believe the things that you're preaching and doing? That was always there. And I don't, I don't, I, well, I, I know now I really didn't believe those things, but, you know, surprisingly, I was, I was raised by a black lady. Mm-hmm. And I ended up, you know, getting involved into these white supremacist movements and Ku Klux Klan and, Things and, and and really just living a very tragic, damaging life, not only to myself but other people. And I think, like I said, I think when I was in that treatment center, I was able to talk and get to know these other people, which is a key thing. Is you know, you know, being exposed and learning about other people. And I think you know, my true self just. I mean, I started I started opening up, and my true feelings started coming out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. You know, it, it's it it really makes a difference. I know it's been one of the the thoughts and and just what I see around me and you know what I've experienced um, as a family member in my own recovery is that the more is when people get in recovery. I mean, we're all different, and I'm not saying there's nobody that's still 
does racist things or whatever in recovery people do but it, but it opens your life up and you can't do some of the you i mean that's the whole point you can't you can't do those negative things you used to do when well, you get negative recovery. things you know look, right there's negative things well you know and will eat you up inside and uh you know, I, I know for a fact it, the, the entire, pro, you know, life caused me many health issues and uh, uh, legal problems and things like that. And, you know, these are things that, that would lead me back into a, a mode of uh, substance abuse or anything like that. You know, you know with the, all those problems, uh, I would have never, I would have never recovered. And, I, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to put in the words, but. I am really grateful that I feel like, of course, my higher power, I call God, and I feel like God played a really sneaky trick on me. He really did. <laughs> you know, I wasn't doing what he wanted me to do, and then again, I wasn't straightening up, and I was, you know, I was just getting deeper and deeper, and uh, all, you know, then he put me into this situation in Nashville, and then I ended up in jail, and then I ended up in court, and then I ended up at Cumberland Heights. And I remember spending many nights sitting in the chapel there at Cumberland Heights. It was, a, you know, they had a, a nice chapel there that you could visit all night long. I spent many a time, nights there, you know, just thinking. And, and I, I remember thinking that he, he pulled a really sneaky trick getting me in here. And But I'm grateful for that sneaky trick. God, God has a sense of humor, and he sure pulled it on me. Yes, he did. <laughs> so, before you got into recovery, did you, did you have a, a relationship with a God or, or a spirituality or not? How did you see it before you got in recovery? Well, you know, I did. I, well, I say I did. I had I had a, I had a relationship with, with probably what I would say a uh, ungodly type religion or whatever you know. And being involved in white supremacist movements, you know, they've got, they, they are a religion themselves, or they think they are, and they got their own uh, ideology, and they, and they use the, you know, of course, they'll use the Bible, and they take different verses and stuff out of the Bible, and they will, they actually pervert it to fit their ideas, and that's one of the things they do for, you know, the recruitment and the new people coming into the organization, they'll use these, you know, for indoctrination. Mm-hmm. And I did, so yeah. I really didn't, I didn't have a real relationship, but, uh, you know, like I said, when I got into the treatment center, I, you know, I got thumped in the head and woke up fast. Right, for sure. To, um, could, could you um, describe any ways that kind of your sense, like, of um, your relationship with God changed, and again, I know what you're saying. Like any time, and I'm going to call it a cult. I'm just that's my word. So, no, but, you know, sure. like yes. groups like that. I mean, and I don't, you know, what what little bit I know about cults. I I know a few things, but anyway, that's that's part of it. Like you said, they they have their own ideology. They pervert whatever kind of literature that might be, you know, quote part of their general culture that they're from, and they brainwash people, I guess is where I'm heading here. Exactly, so, and, when, yes. and when people are coming out of it, it can be pretty intense. I don't know, Did what was that like for you, again, uh, in your in the treatment or maybe even later? Did you feel like, oh, gosh, kind of my head's spinning or I'm coming out of some having to let go of what they told me, like about the Bible or about God and or not? I don't know. What was that like? Well, I tell you, it took, of course, when I came out of treatment and stuff, of course, it was just a thirty-day treatment, and you know, it, it took it took a little while for for what had happened inside that treatment center for me to to for it to really sink in and for me to really you know figure out what had happened and what was going on. In fact, two years two years after that visit to Cumberland Heights, I, I went back for another fourteen days, you know, as a relapse prevention program and uh right. was exposed is exposed to more you know more people and uh, learned a lot more and mm-hmm. of course after i got out then again it took me probably another year or so for me to really withdraw myself from that you know that negative life and it was really strange because you know i got into this got into that life because of the relationship in my family my dad was a, a really violent alcoholic 
I saw things that I probably well, I saw things that no one should really see. Uh, you know, violence-wise, and and I always say, and it's true. You know what what I saw, and it probably did instill PTSD into myself. Sure. But I, you know, these things I saw, and I was looking for a place to fit in, looking for a, a feel good, and mm-hmm. I found it within that organization and and that movement. But when I was getting out, it was like, you know, I done, done left one home, uh, you know, when I left and got into the movement. And here I was leaving, leaving again, these people that had taken me in and stuff. So it was a little bit of a battle there. But uh, mm-hmm. then I reverted back to a lot of the things that I had learned about myself in the treatment center. And uh, I, I was able to withdraw myself completely because, like you said, you know, racism is an addiction. And... When, you know, when I finally realized that, I started trying to use, you know, the recovery program uh, with the racism and, you know, and, <laughs> and treating it as, you know, well, it is really, you know, racism yes, is just it a is. symptom of a deeper problem. And, mm-hmm. so, you know, I, it wasn't a problem with other people, other color, sexual preferences, anything. The problem was myself. I had mm-hmm. the problem, and it, you know, it, it it came out, you know, in the form of racism. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It sure does. I love that you said you applied the principles of the program to uh, the addiction of racism. Could you tell us some specific things that you did? How did you apply it? Or well, how sure. I, you know, I, I went in, of course, you know, when I first got out of the movement and stuff in that life, I, I went into seclusion for a long time. And I didn't try to create any kind of new identity or, or anything. I just kind of withdrew and didn't, didn't socialize with a lot of people. And I didn't see any family. Actually, I, you know, my family relationship had been had been almost destroyed by that way of life. I, you know, I went over 10 years without seeing my sister. And I went many, many years without seeing my own daughter because of it. And, you know, it it, it, it was really tough, you know, uh, losing the relationship with my sister and them. But, mm-hmm. I, you know, when I left that life, I said, I got to figure out a way to, you know, deal with this and, and, and what to do. So I, the first thing I did... I opened up and I started going to people that I knew I had hurt, people of color, mm-hmm. thing, not physically hurt, but, you know, even verbally said things that hurt them. And I went to everyone I could find and, and, and apologized. And one, the biggest, you know, thing was I opened up that blog. And that was mm-hmm. the, first, the first thing that I did, you know. I, I said, you know, maybe this, maybe this will help. I can publish this blog and get to people that I can't find and can't see. Well, I did it, and I was really scared. I was really scared, and uh, you know about that, because when you hit that button, it's out there. Yep. And I hit that <laughs> button. I said, "Well, here it would go." So after it was, you know, published, uh, you know, the response and and all the support and positive comments and things that I got was just really overwhelming. And so it, it really has been a a. I won't say downhill or uphill. It's been a, a positive journey from there because you know it gave me the gave me the confidence and 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 the assurance that you know you're on the right track and you're doing the right thing. So you know that's where I actually started beginning the uh, journey of you know self education, which I'll always be learning, but uh, education of others and trying to stop racism. Right. Yeah, that took a lot of guts to um to go back, I guess, you know, again put it and putting it in program language to go make the amends to people, you know, the face to face amends and then to um and then like you said, to put that blog out. And it's good it's good. Your blog's great. There's a lot of good stuff on there. I hope that, you know, listeners will go have a look at it. Um Well see it, yeah. it was really it, it was a really uh, in, in a very intense and deep problem that I had, you know, of course uh, one of the things that I first uh, first did was, of course, the black lady that raised me, uh, Rebecca Hawkins, who's 102 years old and still living in Indianola, Mississippi today. And uh, I visit her reg- on a regular basis. And 
she was family. She raised my mother. She raised my brother, my uh, older sister, myself, and my younger sister. And her family was our family. And I mm-hmm. I withdrew myself from her because of the life I was living in, you know, and it was embarrassment and, and guilt. And she was one of the first people, I, first people that I went to. And she opened the door with her arms open, hugged my neck, and nothing was ever said about it since. And we, you know, I, I knew then I was home. Mm-hmm. And it really, you know, was an important, important step in, in my recovery. And like I said, it was, I was deep. I, I, I had searched out the Italian mafia to try to get involved with that. I had searched, you know, researched and tried to get involved with the Irish Republican Army. I mean, I was, you know, I was, I was really a, a, a misguided kid, and as I've said, told people before, if ISIS had been around, I possibly could have ended up, you know, in in an organization like that, or like Dylan Ruth over in South Carolina that shot up and murdered all the people in that, you know, in that church. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, thank you for your perspective on that. I really do um, appreciate it, and it's so valuable. And, um, you know, when when we can understand those kinds of things, like ISIS and what Dylan Roof did and all of it, and the KKK and all of it, and the many things, it, it's true. It's an addiction, and people get sucked in, and they get brainwashed, and, and then it takes on this life of its own, and... and uh, I think when we start to understand that, then then we start to see some pathways out. And I know you're a part of that, of, of helping well, people. I tell you, I sure, hope, I sure hope what I'm doing. You know, I, I said, if I, if I can help just one person, I've done my job. But, you know, one person isn't enough. There's, there's a lot of people out there that's misguided and stuff. And, and Daryl Davis is a great guy. He's like a he, – he is my brother. And mm-hmm. uh, we've done a lot of things together and, and have been successful in, in, in helping people get out of the white supremacist movement. And actually, I, I'm at the, not at the moment, but at the present, I'm, I'm talking to a gentleman over in uh, uh, Tennessee and another one that's up. Actually, he's up around Oregon and who, who were imperial wizards of the Klan, which were the top man like the president of the United States within that organization. And uh, I've been dealing with them, and, uh, and and they have contacted me recently, and they they ask asking for help. They want to, you know, get out of that life. So hopefully, mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, we'll continue on this, on this path that people, you know, people will get out. Absolutely. It's time right now for uh, a break here at, in Spirit of Recovery, we'll be um, just take a couple of minutes here for a break, and then we'll be back. And I really want to thank you, Scott. My um, guest is Scott Shepard. He's uh, talking with us about free from hate, free to live, free to help, about how getting in recovery for alcoholism opened the door for him to uh, look at himself and to get out of this life of racism that he'd been living. You can learn more about Scott, and you can go to Facebook at Scott Shepard Reformed Racist, and you can find um, links to his other uh, page. There, uh, you can also go to racist no more one dot the number one block excuse me dot blogspot dot com, and you can also go look up on pbs.org the independent lens uh, series of films and look up accidental courtesy. And Scott is also uh, one of the featured um, interviewees in that film. So stay with us, we'll be right back um, on Spirit of Recovery, and uh, we'll see you back in a moment. Wouldn't you like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives. Do you ask with childlike wonder, what is the nature of God? Who is Jesus? What is the Christ? How do we know what we know? When you ask these or other heart-centered questions about the non-physical, intangible aspects of life, you are, on some level, a student of metaphysics. New from Unity House and nearly five years in the making, Heart-Centered Metaphysics, a deeper look at Unity teachings, is now available. 
This is Paul Hasselbeck, author of this quintessential study guide. Enjoy a deeper exploration of universal spiritual principles and truths, whether you are just starting or have been seeking for years. Each thought-provoking chapter of Heart Center Metaphysics speaks to truth seekers like you, providing essential tools to help elevate your consciousness and create spiritual transformations in your outer life and circumstances. Order your copy today from the Unity Online Store at www.unity.org. Then click on Shop. Somewhere, tucked away in the Unity Library archives in Unity Village, Missouri, you can find a secret treasure. They are the scripts from Unity co-founder Charles Fillmore's early days on broadcast radio. The teachings of Unity's founders, almost a hundred years old. Now, for the first time in history, you can hear them through the power of the Internet. Join Bob Brock every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, for Unity Classic Radio, Words from Our Past. Discover the wisdom of Charles Fillmore's talks and of other Unity Radio speakers read on the air again. Call in your comments and questions as Bob and his special guests revisit Unity Radio talks of the past along with historical background from the early days of the Unity Movement. That's Unity Classic Radio, words from our past, every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, right here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. listening to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Anna Schaus and her guest. If you have a question or comment or experience with today's topic that you'd like to share, call us now at 888-55-UNITY. That's 888-558-6489. Call now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unityonlineradio.org. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. If you're just joining us, um, I'm your host. My name is Anna Schaus, and uh, my guest today is Scott Shepard. And we're talking about free from hate, free to live, free to help. And um, Scott is a person in long-term recovery, and he's also a reformed racist. And he is in recovery from alcoholism, opened the door to a whole new way of life for him, for him to start moving out of that racist lifestyle and now into a very active uh, life of educating himself and educating other people about how not to get involved in um, racist, white supremacist, cult-type um, of groups and also assisting people, helping them get out um, if they want to get out. You can um, look up his Facebook page, Scott Shepherd. It's S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D, Reformed Racist. He's got Racist No More with the number one dot blogspot.com. And also, you can um, see the film that he is one of the featured interviewees in. It's called Accidental Courtesy. And uh, Scott, let me know that that is on Netflix. So you can go to Netflix, look up in their documentary section, and um, you can find that there. And so, again, you can uh, connect with Scott through those venues. Probably the simplest one right off the top is to go to his Facebook page and um, you can read more about him and, and connect with him if you want to. Before we get back to my conversation with Scott, I'd like to invite you to join me in a brief moment of prayer and meditation um, and opening yourself to your higher power as you understand it. And just take a brief moment, um, share with me a constructive idea and here in the Serenity Minute, and then we'll just take a moment in the quiet. So I do invite you to relax, to open your mind and your heart, to allow yourself to relax from the crown of your head all the way through your body temple, and share with me this constructive idea. My higher power loves me and all people. My higher power guides me to harmonious relationships with everyone. My higher power loves me and all people. We're all God's children. And my higher power guides me to wonderful, harmonious relationships with everyone. And now we take just a moment in the quiet. 
thank you, friends, for joining me in the Serenity Minute. And I trust that that was an opportunity for you to relax and to take a moment to make that conscious contact with your higher power as you understand it. And so now I'm back to my conversation with my guest, Scott Shepard, talking about free from hate, free to live, and free to help. So, um, Scott, I know that uh, as you were telling us beforehand here, before the break, that one of the things that uh, propelled you may be a pretty strong um, propulsion to uh, join up with the Ku Klux Klan and, and well, as you said, you searched out some other uh, hate groups. I call them cults. That's my term um, to belong because your childhood, your dad had been a violent alcoholic and um, you, you, you saw witness violence and, and truly I'm sure did and do maybe even still have PTSD and that you were looking for home. Tell us a little bit more about the dynamics of that, because I know that's, that affects a lot of people that get into gangs or get into uh, these different kind of uh, cult-type cult groups. What's that longing like? What, what are you, what's, what's going on with that? Tell us some more about that. Well, you, you know, you're, you're right when you, all, you, know, uh, you know, comment on this first. You mentioned other gangs and things like that. It, it, that's exactly what it is. And it's a cult, but I mean, the process of getting in these organizations is the same process, you know, with these gangs and, and, and major cities and, well, not major cities, these are small towns too now, but they're in gangs. And, and, and of course, the, the problem is, that, you know, is at home. You know, I grew up in a uh, home with a very violent alcoholic father. And uh, it, it was many a time, and yeah, many a times, you know, that, you know, I, I'd, of course, lay in bed, and my mother and daddy were fussing and fighting, and then my daddy would get violent and uh, abuse my mother. And there was uh, also times where the furniture in the house, you know, when, of course, when he ended up leaving, the furniture in the house wasn't a piece of furniture standing up on its feet, you know, and some of it had been thrown out the window and uh, out in the yard and and then, you know, of course, there was just one, you know, one example. There's really many that I, probably if I, if I explain some of them, it'd give listeners PTSD, but I won't go that far. But not only did it affect myself, but it affected my older brother and my sister. But that was pretty much the problem that I ran into, you know, de- dealing with that and having, the, you know, making the uh decision to join in, join up one of these organizations, which mm-hmm. that's the only thing I had to turn to. I didn't have a family. I didn't have anybody that I felt, you know, cared about me or loved me. I didn't have anybody to turn to. And if I'd had mm-hmm. someone to turn to, it may have been, you know, may, it may have been different, someone I trust. But right. uh, then I ran into, you know, some of these uh, members of the clan and stuff. And, of course, they... They put their arm out and put their arm around me and said, uh, you know, come on, you know, come on, we'll be your family and we'll take care of you and, and, uh, help you along. And, and that's what, that's what kind of sucked me in. I felt, you know, I felt a feeling of importance and a void that was in myself. And, and then, and then I was sucked right in and, and continued a life of many, many years. And it, it, like I said, it all result, you know, was a result from what I went through with my own family, you know, life when I was a kid. Right, for sure. And um, I'm, I, I don't know, I'm asking, because I, I don't know. The, um, so within the clan, is there, um, like, are the dynamics there similar to, like, a family with alcoholism? And is there... Uh, uh, the the abuse of alcohol is there people a lot of people in there that um, do have substance addictions or not or I don't know what are the dynamics of that there is there, there is you know there's different factions of, of, of white supremacist movement and uh, one of them uh, of course is, is the skinhead movement which consumes you know many young kids and teens up in, even up into the twenties. And uh, they get involved, you know, and they're they're also like a Nazi, you know, a neo-Nazi organization. And majority of those young kids are are abusing alcohol and or drugs. But uh, it's pretty much, you know, a common thing with them. Now, you move over into like the KKK, uh, you know, they they tried, they got a problem with, they got an image uh, 
problem. Of course, we don't. And I say a problem. Their image is is one hundred percent right. We know who they are and what they did, but they want to try to change the image to make them look more like an upstanding organization, and they're doing a civic duty to the community and the country. Where in fact, you know, they're, they're just preaching this hate. And and yes, within the Ku Klux Klan too, there is you know, a, a large number of alcoholics or, you know, substance abuse people, but uh, it's hidden a lot, you know, a lot more there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they try to want to look more upstanding or something, I professional, guess. Professional, professional, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell us more, Scott, about what you're doing now to, I know you're educating yourself in, in many ways and it is always a lifelong process, as you said earlier, and, and you're also trying and working out there to educate people and um, to help them not get in and also helping people get out. So how are you doing that? What are some things you do to educate yourself and how you help well, others? Basically, well, you know, of course, self-education is something I'll be, you know, I'll, of course, I'll be apologizing the rest of my life and then I'll be also self-education the rest of my life. I'm always seeking out, you know, different things that I that I haven't done, or where or things that I could learn, you know, about, uh, you know, the, the problems of racism. And uh, of course, right here in Memphis, Tennessee, we got the National Civil Rights Museum where Martin Luther King was uh, assassinated. And I've lived in the Memphis area for pretty much all my life. And then the museum is, you know, is also here. I never darkened the door. And actually, never you know driven down the street that the uh, hotel and museum was on. Mm-hmm. So you know, of course, one day I decided I wanted to go, so I went and went into the museum. And I was just and I was just overwhelmed by all the information that was in there. And then I, I left, and I realized you know it, I, it was a lot that I didn't see. So I went back a second and third time, and I was able to learn a, you know a lot of things about myself also because they had displays of a. Uh, in a glass case of a uh, robed Klansman uh, inside this glass case, and inside, and, and of course that brought back really some some guilt and feelings that you know that that were really negative to me and negative to everyone. And so you know, it was, and I saw pictures you know on the walls that they had painted and had pictures hanging on the walls of people that I knew and people that I'd been involved with and. Some of them were really bad, you know, negative and bad people. You know, they had been in in jail and convicted of bombings and and, and some for murder. And so it really brought back a lot of feelings that uh, I really needed to to experience because those were some that I needed to work out. Because, you know, hate, hate is a very powerful, powerful uh, problem. And it eats you up from the inside out, and of course, it did myself. And I've had I've had three fourths of my stomach removed due to stomach ulcers, and I know without a doubt the reason it you know where they came from. It was from all the all the secrets and the hate and the guilt that I kept within myself, and finally just you know it ate me up. And uh, honestly, uh, you know, of course, it's almost killed me twice. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, that that as you're saying, all that stress and and the secrets and all of it, and it, it really can take a toll on us uh, physically, for sure. Yeah. Oh, very much. So, it, you know, it, like I said, it's mm-hmm. I, you know, of course, I'll be suffering. You know, the the consequences of my past for years and years, well, for probably the rest of my life. But uh, those are the things I just have to deal with, and when, you know, I will and keep on, you know, doing what I'm doing. Right. So, and I know part of what you're doing is you're you're hoping to help young people not um, get sucked into these things. What are what are some of the things that you're doing, and and what kind of results are you seeing? I I think it goes without saying that right now we're in a climate where it appears that people who want to act out their hate kind of seem a bit emboldened, seem emboldened. So, anyway. So what what are what are you, the results and what are you doing and what are what are you seeing happening for people? Well, I tell you what, you know, mainly what we do, of course, is a lot of these white supremacist groups and, and, and these leaders and members and stuff that we're able to reach. I mean, surprisingly, they've been accepting of uh, you know our invitations to sit down and talk to them. 
And, and mm-hmm. of course, we have Daryl Davis and I both have, you know, have done this, and we've come to realize that, you know, just sitting down and talking with these people, you know, is one of the main main tools that we have and really can use. Because, you mm-hmm. know, Daryl Davis's quote, you know, if we're talking, we're not fighting. And that's right. true. And so we've learned, you know, that we could sit down and talk with these people and over a period of time develop a relationship with these white supremacists and, and uh, have, you know, has been successful in getting some of them out by just getting to know them and finding out that, you know, we do have a lot of things in common and stuff. And, and Daryl Davis can do more good than I can because, you know, Daryl Davis is African-American. And, and, of course, the white supremacist movement, they look at me as a traitor. A lot of them do because mm-hmm. I'm white and I left that organization. And, uh, and Daryl is running to the same problem with the uh, African-American community, you know, people who doesn't, you know, don't understand and don't agree with what he's doing, you know, making friends for white supremacists. So, you know, that's one thing we're doing as far as, you know, active members. And then, you know, we're also trying to, you know, talk to young people and, and tell young people if you have a problem or or if you feel feel these things, you know, start of, of hatred and or anything like that, you know, seek out someone you trust. You know, you can't hold these things in. If you hold these things in, they're going to manifest itself into a very negative thing. And you're you're going to ruin your life and and, and possibly someone else's and find someone you trust and and, and talk with them and I mean Daryl and I both are open you know, to anyone they can find us and we'd be glad to talk with them and so those are things that we've been doing that have been really productive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you and know, we it's, found, it's, we, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I said, you know, some of the things that we found out, you know, the key to the thing is, is communication. Without communication, we're doomed. And we can, you know, if we communicate with each other, and I'm talking about like whites and blacks, you know, and, and racial issues and things like that, if we can communicate, it, and one example is if you're in a restaurant or a, a cafeteria somewhere like that, and you see, you know, people, you know, of different color uh, sitting over in, at a table or something. Get up and walk across the room. Walk mm-hmm. across the room, sit down and talk with them and get to know them. And uh, you'll find out you got a lot in common. And and I think that's one, another problem is we just don't know people. And getting to know them and communicate, you know, is one of the main things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, it strikes me that what you're saying is really. Uh, I'm not saying that the recovery community invented this, but it sure is that just a good old recovery, just a good old human thing is reach out your hand and and talk to somebody and and make a That's relationship, right. make a connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's it. You know, that, that, that's definitely the tool to the whole thing, and. I mean, we don't have all the answers. We, I mean, we just all all we all we can do is just you know go with what we what we've learned and 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 just grasp for anything out there in in this universe and 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 try to turn it into a positive thing for everyone so that we can heal this evil you know illness of racism and that's what it is. Like, again, like I said, it's it's like alcoholism. It's a disease, and uh, you know. You got to treat the problem, the root of that disease, and that's look in the mirror. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. What happens when you do you and Daryl again? That you can. I I just enjoyed seeing uh, some of those interactions on the on the documentary film, the accidental courtesy film. But uh, tell me, you know, tell us firsthand here, like. When you're having these conversations with the white supremacists, first of all, how in the how do you find them? How do you initially make the contact, and then sort of what happens in these conversations? Well, basically, of course, basically Daryl has you know has has been one that's been really helpful. You know, of course, Daryl wrote a book, and uh, oh, the book is titled "Clandestine Relationship." Okay, and mm-hmm. that's one of the things that he uses to. Uh, I mean, started out with, he was researching for this book. He'd have a secretary call some of these uh, white 
supremacist and uh, tell him that, you know, her boss is researching for a book and he would like to sit down and talk to him, you know, and, and just interview him. And, uh, of course, a lot of them didn't know he was black. And, uh, mm-hmm. of course, when he showed up, some of them were stunned, but, but some of them were very receptive to him and, and were, sat down and talked with him. And, and that was a one of the main things that he used as far as, you know, developing a relationship with some of these uh, active members and being able to talk to them and get them to, you know, reconsider their you know ideas on race and, and change. And, he, you know, and, of course, he's redoing his book again. And uh, just just from that, people have been, you know, he's been exposed by media. Uh, I say exposed by media. He's had a lot of media attention, and people have been able to see him. And you know, people search him out. And of course, my mm-hmm. involvement with Daryl Davis and stuff is, you know, some exposure where, and now people have been you know, able to find me, and I, you know, I've been able to do the same thing that Daryl is. Maybe not as well as him because, like I said, I'm white, and a lot of these uh, organizations consider me a traitor. And very, mm-hmm. very angry at me, and, and of course I've had death threats and things like that. But I just go with the flow, and uh, I, I got the, I got my higher power behind my back, and I just do the best I can. That's right. Yeah. Um, just one last question. Like you said a little bit ago, that you and I think you and Daryl are talking to these men, um, maybe out on the west coast that are wanting to get out of the clan. So, kind of. What questions, I don't know, like, I mean, what, what's the, the process or what goes on with them and how do you try to help them? Well, basically, you know, of course, we'll sit down and talk with them. And, uh, you know, well, you know, well, of course, Daryl is very, very educated on, uh, you know, the Ku Klux Klan and the white supremacist movement also. And, uh, of course, he, he's probably more educated about it than I am, which is, you know, kind of strange. Because I was mm-hmm. the one that was on the inside of it, but we sit down at the table, and of course, you just you know start up a conversation, uh, talk about you know not really politics, but we just start you know strike up a conversation about racism and go from there. And they give you their they give us their view, and then we'll you know ask them questions, and then give them my view, and they've asked us questions, and sure, it's you know sometimes it's been like a ball bouncing back and forth, and we're not getting anywhere, but. After a period of, you know, discussions and talking with these people and staying in touch with them, uh, it's been, we've been able to, you know, break, break down that wall of, of, of anger that they have towards people that don't believe in the things that they do. And they start discussing and talking, you know, to us more and mm-hmm. end up, uh, you know, a relationship that, like I said, a lot of times turns into uh, a change of heart and, become good friends and some of them even become you know well like myself you know try to try to fight racism right great well um we're at the end of our time here today but scott i really want to thank you for um being my guest and i want to thank you very deeply from for um your own choice to recover and, and for what you're doing for other people. And, you know, one thing that just stood out to me and you just said it again is that the key to all this is relationship is, uh, exactly. Loving relationship yeah, communication. Absolutely. So, uh, I thank you. And again, my guest is Scott Shepard. You can look him up on Facebook, Scott Shepard, reformed racist. You can find their connections to his blog and, um, to that film, the documentary, um, accidental courtesy. And again, the man that, uh, kind of is the uh, featured uh, on that person. That is Daryl Davis, D A V I S, and we just learned that he has a book called Clandestine Relationships. So, um, anyway, so thank you, Scott, so much. Thanks for what you're doing. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for being my guest today. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for having me. And if, if there's anything I can do for any of the people that, that are listening, I mean, just look me up. I'm I'm I'm, I'm always here. Just Great. never give up. Yeah. Amen. Much appreciated. Listeners, thank you for being here today. Thank you for not giving up on yourselves and on life and on people. And uh, we're glad that you're here. I'm glad to be here today. And uh, we will be back next week on Spirit of Recovery. God bless.
Thank you for listening to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D., and her guests. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central Time for down-to-earth ideas about keeping spirituality at the heart of your recovery. This program is brought to you in part by Soul Matters Ministry, committed to bringing light to the soul. Online at soulmatters-spiritworks.org. Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.